And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast fit anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. My name is Stephen Hostetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour. Howdy. You may have noticed that uh, third co-host David Hostetter is not uh, here yet again this week. Last week he was sick. This week he's feeling better, but is playing a concert tonight. So he can't make uh, this. So I guess he actually he's actually the front man. He doesn't actually play anything. So I guess he's singing in a concert tonight. Yeah, he has cooler things to do with yeah. his. I was about to say oral talents, but that's an icky way to phrase it. <laughs> he just has different uh, things going on today, guys. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so later on in the show, we're going to talk to a friend of the show, Matthew Klippenstein, about a kind of wide-ranging conversation uh, about some of the stuff that he's got going on and thinking about uh, and some of the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, the last show of the new year was a show about elbow grease and innovation and about how we really sort of want our governments to sort of get down to the hard work. But before that, Lauren, you had this good idea of talking about what books are on our dockets for this year. And so what are you planning on reading? I'm revisiting civil disobedience. I know Thoreau is questionable. Like we're like, oh, like his mom made his sandwiches and his mom did his laundry. And it's like, yeah. And when I go home, my mom, my mom makes me sandwiches and does my laundry. You know what I mean? Anyway, revisiting Thoreau. It's nice and short. I'm revisiting the Communist Manifesto because again, nice and short. These were a couple of these are some easy wins. Um, I'm finally reading Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Feder Fred Federici Fred Federici Federici, which is like kind of supposed to be this like landmark feminist text um that i'm excited to get to i'm finally reading orientalism by by saeed um i've got a bit of oscar wilde in there i've got a bit of hannah arendt um i'm reading i'm rereading to the finland station because that was a book i read in high school and completely didn't get it like i'm pretty sure my essay that i wrote for this history class was basically like this book was too complicated and i didn't get it so so I, I'm, I'm revisiting it <laughs> And seeing um and seeing what I can extract from it this time. Uh Prisoners of Love is another one I'm reading that feels quite timely. And those are sort of like again, like the classics. We've got like a lot of like New York review of books titles in there. And then other ones I'm gonna try to get to as well. Um, I'm gonna try to get to Civil Resistance by Chenoweth, because um Chenoweth is the is the movement theorist who is often cited in that sort of like three percent or three point five percent rule. Um she has a, a whole textbook, basically, that was put up by like Oxford, like the Oxford University uh, publishers a couple of years ago on civil resistance that I re really would like to try to get to. Um, I'm hoping to read uh, Vincent Bevan's new book, If We Burn, that I can't remember if we talked about or not, um, but is basically reviewing sort of like the last decade, like the 10, the 10 years that have recently passed, um, during which time there's a whole bunch of sort of like revolutionary action. Um, thinking of like Arab Spring, things that went down in Hong Kong. Um, all over the world in 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 um in South America as well, Latin America as well, um, that ultimately didn't result in the sort of progressive regime establishment that 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 revolutionaries were hoping it would. And he's sort of trying to figure out uh, why and and how that why and how things played out that way. Um, and then a couple other books on my list are um, as we have always done, and as long as grass grows, they're about um, indigenous resistance and indigenous relationships to to land um, in sort of like so-called North America. And then, and then, I, oh, I don't know. Oh, God, my reading list is good. Um, I want to get to Hegemony How To, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. 
Um, oh, and then a book called The Practice of Belonging that's about coalition building because um, I do I do some of that stuff for work. And um, I don't know. It's a topic that interests me and frustrates me. So so that's some of what I'm hoping to get to this year. Oh, and then the last one, I started trying to read it when I was at COP, had to put it down. We'll maybe revisit it again one day. Is not too late. And it's the new um, Rebecca Solnit um they're not her essays. It's uh, it's one that she edited that's all about sort of like not losing hope in the face of climate disaster um, and how there is still time and it is not too late. And again, um, tried to tried to read it in Dubai and um, wasn't feeling receptive to the message. Um, <laughs> but a lot of folks say it's really fantastic. So I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. Yeah. What about you? The, Any I mean, overlap? My, uh, I mean, I only have two books on my list, so I can't. Okay. I mean, I didn't I didn't think about I, I have never planned books that far in advance. I'm mm, I'm very impressed by your like that's at least 10 to 15 books. I don't know how I mean, like, sure, you can knock at Connie Manifesto in like in an afternoon or something. Yeah. 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 But um, but no. I, the, so the 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 two books that I that I have like on my shelf that I'm just like planning on reading that are sort of related to this um, are a book called Buffalo is the New Buffalo by Chelsea Vowell. Mm. And uh, and a, and a book called Fire Weather uh, by by John uh, Valiant. And so basically, oh, yeah, Buffalo's in Buffalo is is talking uh, is is indigenous stories about education, and then Fire Weather is, I believe, a firsthand account about the Fort McMurray fires and trying to sort of like give people a sense of what it really feels like to live through that kind of disaster. I'm. I will admit that I rarely enjoy climate books that are written for a general audience. Like I, I know that it's meant more to be about the the disaster itself, and I think it w won't have exactly that level. But I do find myself often sort of wishing for more from sort of mainstream climate books, and so I'm a little less certain about that one. But I'm excited to to give it a chance. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for you to check that one out too. That was one that I I kept meaning or I kept I kept kind of eyeing up in the summertime um when when the wildfires were really sort of like at a at a fever pitch. Um John Valiant, if if you're listening, I tried to DM you to see if you would talk <laughs> to us for the show and you didn't respond, which is within your mm. right. That's totally yeah. chill. But uh yeah, would love for, um, I'm excited for you to read it and then let me know because you're right. Sometimes ones, um, sometimes climate books meant for a general audience are are hard to sort of um, like really sink your teeth into if you're somebody who thinks about climate all the time. That being said, I can think of like several general audience climate titles that I've really liked in recent years. The one that I always come back to is is, is one that I know a lot of people have come back to, which is um, an, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth. It's oh, like sure. that was a book that I think was very much meant for a general audience and like, whoa, hit me like a ton of bricks at the time. Oh, so can... I, I saw him I saw him speak about that book and it was very much like, a all right, new guy learns about climate change now is scared about it vibes for me. But he's a writer, not a speaker. So I'm willing to accept that the book is better. Yeah, no, no. The the book is really good. Um, I think the I think while wow, talking about a book that neither one of us is planning on reading this year, but um, I found it just he did a really good job of like conveying to you how scared he was and like the magnitude of the crisis that was at hand. Um, it's a book that I recommended to to a bunch of people, both climate and non-climate folks. And I think I think by and large, I, I think it was actually kind of appreciated because he is he's not a climate scientist. He's a communicator. So he did a really good job of taking this crisis that a lot of us think about on a daily basis and packaging it for a general audience and being like, look at this. Look at how scary this is um, in a way that was like definitely like 
threw one into existential crisis, but effective nonetheless. <laughs> well, I mean, was effective because it threw you into a bit of an existential right. crisis. Exactly. Yeah. And I and I do think there's a there's a funny tension between the books like that compared with the books like uh, Never Too Late or Not Too Late. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like sometimes you need the hard truth and be like, oh, I got to do something. And sometimes you need like the, oh, no, it's not actually all over. There is a path forward. There are really cool things happening. Yeah, I, I can allow belief we can win to enter my own subconscious so that I can continue yeah. this effort. Yeah, well, it's 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 sort of like how it's like, I don't know, you can't just consume Rebecca Solnit and you can't just consume David Wallace Wells the same way that like you can't just eat apples. You have to sometimes mm. also eat broccoli as well. Like there's there's a variety of different like, I don't know, intellectual nutrients that one needs to consume um, in order to, I don't know, not lose your head completely. Yeah, I think that's I think it's that's how I'd put it. Um, so. Next week, actually, will be a fun conversation uh, with Professor Jessica Green from U of T, and we're going to be talking about climate fiction and sort of this idea of other climate futures. So perhaps we'll get I'll get a couple books recommendations from from her as well that maybe we can add to the list. But if you are a listener, I would also love to hear your books. So yeah. please send us an email. Uh, send us a tweet. We're still on Twitter. Yeah, we're still we're, there. Or X, rather. No, yeah. um, I'll be curious to see what she brings up because um, because yeah, like there's obviously like more and more climate fiction coming out. I mean, we on the left go love love to love to go back to Octavia Butler all the time because Parable of the Sower is so good. I know a ton of people have been reading Ministry of the Future over the last couple of years. Did you finish it last year? I did. Okay. I, and Jessica Green is maybe the only other person I have met who actually finished that book. Everyone Valid. else who recommended it to me, I discovered they gave up some at some point through it because it's like 700 pages and includes a lot about glaciers fun stuff you know it's really yeah. funny the same publisher that put out that book because I, I have another one also put out like by a totally different author like more super dense kind of like speculative sci-fi and i mm. feel like it's like maybe that publisher's mo is like 700 page sci-fi books that are super duper dense and it's not that they're not good but it's like oh you need to be ready to like really pay attention oh i mean kim stanley robinson the writer of uh minnesota feature also wrote he got famous for this book called Red Mars and this Red Mars series. And mm. that also is 700 pages and includes like hundreds of pages about Mars archipelago that like you just don't need. So I think he just likes research and right. then likes explaining research to you. Right. OK. And here's the thing. My brain isn't doing is she's she's not in <laughs> tip top shape. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes I need something a little bit. A little bit easier to digest, a little hmm. bit easier to 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 come in and out of. Um, because I don't know about you, but it's like I can't like read the way I did when I was twelve, and I could sit down and I could plow through I don't know whatever book in an entire afternoon anymore. It's like about every I want to say three and a half to seven and a half minutes, I get distracted by something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why Katie Butler is great. It's it's a thrill ride. You start, you r keep running in the entire time, and then and then and that's over. There's no words spared. Like like every yes. word is necessary. You're always ha things are always happening, and then yeah. you're left and like, being like, wow, not in an annoying Hemingway kind of way. You know mm. how he's like, I'm stark with my language. Anyway, yeah, this has been fun. Thanks for the chat about books. Always yeah. Here for Listeners, please send us your book recommendations because apparently I need another 15 to catch up to Lauren. And we are chatting about, it's an article, honestly, that came out in the middle of last year from Kate it, Arnoff. 
in the summertime, which makes sense yeah. because she's referencing things like pool parties. Exactly. Right in the title. Um, but she reposted it at the end of the year as like one of her favorite things she wrote. And so I opened it because I was interested. And everything she writes about, I think, is not only relevant to where the, you know, the Biden administration is now, um, but it's also relevant to, I think, where Trudeau is now and to all of us who want to see a progressive uh, and climate safe future. Because, like, basically the article is about how despite the success of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, being passed and the success of it succeeding on its own terms in that like tons of private money has been unlocked to do a bunch of things and it's happening. People just in America were not, did not see Biden's successes as real success. And I think the same can be said uh, about a lot of the climate policy that you see here in Canada. Um, The problem in the States for Biden have only gotten worse in terms of the economy seemingly doing well. People have called it very successful from macroeconomic ways, but people are still just generally the vibes remain bad. And most of Twitter now is is people arguing that people are wrong for the vibes being bad, which is just like a meeting like could not waste more time. But the art. But the point of the article basically is that when thinking about climate action and large industrial policy, we should also think about things that we need to do to make people just have a better life. And I think that really applies also to the things that we see, say, in how Canada has been tackling climate change. You know, we've got a present carbon. We have an emissions cap. We have like cheaper ways for people to get heat pumps. All of those things, good, doing doing good amount of work. But what we don't have is any way to, for people to use transit more often or, you know, or or more public luxuries. Like we have not made people feel like things are better. We've just sort of instituted these like larger trends and hoped the vibes would come afterwards. And I and in the, art, the article, and I think I agree with it, is making the case that that's not enough. And so like you just read it because I sent it to you. What were your thoughts? It bummed me out not because the article itself is a bummer it's not kate aronoff does a wonderful job sort of like again it's 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 a lot of it sort of harkening back to like the green new deal tenants of a few years ago focusing on that sort of like socialism of abundance and the ways in which governments can can provide um sort of like public common they've, they've been referred to before as like sort of like luxury of the commons kind of thing um in order to like a benefit people's lives but b like get voters on board for so-called like liberal liberal um politics and parties and uh, ahead of the election and i think one of the reasons this really bummed me out is because there's a world in which i could see if one of Bi- if, if if biden's people were reading this article that they'd be like yeah kate's right we should be implementing some of that stuff and i could see a world in which they would they would put some of that into practice not before the next election, but but in some in some way, shape or form, Biden has demonstrated a willingness to kind of like play ball at least a little bit when it comes to progressive party politics over the last few years. Um, we could see that with like the ways in which he's engaging with labor unions in ways that that presidents haven't in, in recent years, et cetera, stuff like that. And and the IRA, um, the, the the bill of the state's not the Irish Republican Army, but um, the IRA and and some of the money that that has been put into industrial policy in order to to progress sort of like um, climate uh, initiatives, and we just don't have that same energy and that same willing to play ball here in in so called Canada, at least not with the Liberals. And actually, honestly. 
freaking not with the NDP either. Like I was trying to think of a world in which we would see something like um, doubling down on an investment in in uh, public common like like um, services and luxuries like like things like she mentions libraries. She of course talks about public pools. Um, especially this was written in the summertime and and. I I think something that we don't think about often enough is like the concept of a public pool, not just in terms of um, recreation, but actually in terms of it actually being like a bit of a lifeline, a bit of a service for for communities that are experiencing heat waves. Um, the same way that like the library isn't actually just a luxury fun place to go. It's 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 a resource hub for communities. And um, that kind of like beautiful, mythical, um, ever sort of like dwindling third space that that doesn't require um, a given person to spend money to to spend time in publicly. Um, and and I uh, I don't see Trudeau's staff reading this same article and being like, yeah, this is this is great stuff. These are the kind of initiatives we need to be putting forth in in, in, in order to win over hearts and minds. And even if like, I don't know, I hate I hate to to bring up like the Canadian election that is theoretically on the horizon in the next, I don't know, 18 months or so, but we are going to be having one likely fall 2025. Um, a, a really fantastic potential pathway that I know we're not going to go down is if we had an actual like NDP liberal coalition government that came together to say, hey, we need to in, in, in order to make sure things like climate continue to stay on the agenda, we need to work together. We need to make it attractive. We need to make it exciting. We need to make it actually about like building a livable, exciting future for people as opposed to just sort of like limping along over the next couple of years and and like hoping Polyev doesn't get in um, because I just I but but a coalition government is is like laughable at this point. Like if I were to bring that up amongst like Ottawa people, they'd be like, oh, honey, that's not going to happen. And I know it's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. But that's like the only scenario in which I could see something like this ever coming to pass. And it's not necessarily because the NDP or the liberals are, are especially progressive. But it's like I would think that if they were to come together in, in some sort of coalitional government, it would I don't know, it would it would also be some signaling of like, I don't know, good faith and enthusiasm and hope for the future that, that you need in in order to put something like this into practice. So I love I love this piece. I love the politics she's she's sort of putting forward here. I it just bummed me out because I don't see it ever happening in Canada. I but maybe I really do need to read the Rebecca Solnit book right away because I'm in like such sheer desperados. Like it's it's blue Monday and I'm recording on a Wednesday kind of thing. Right. I think some of the learnings that sort of identified from the New Deal era, which is sort of what's being harkened back to in this piece. Are, remain true, right? Like some of the things she talks about is because they built a bunch of swimming pools but left them to be segregated, they then they then lost all the swimming pools because they were closed down by by states instead of being uh, integrated uh, when segregation uh, fell. And these kinds of things that like over the 40 years from when this all happened to when it, when it, in 1980 to like sort of the Reagan era, like you just saw loss after loss after loss of these public spaces. And I mean, as you mentioned, I've become like increasingly more and more obsessed, I'll say, about how important these sort of public spaces and communities are in terms of across the board climate action. Mm -hmm. Like if you ask yourself what would be necessary for a for emergency response to extreme weather, one of the answers is going to have to be community-based responses and where else could you get community-based responses if not being centering them in either you know 
public libraries, or community centers. And if you don't do one of those two, you're stuck with basically the only other things, which is our emergency response. You're either getting firefighters, police, or or I am well, I mean, actually the ambulances are private still. So that wouldn't even count. So like which no one wants. You do you don't want your emergency response uh or you don't want your community response to be led, you know, by you know, police or firefighters. A, it's not their job. B, you know, you don't want police involved anyways. And C, that's incredibly expensive in comparison to what you could do if you gave people spaces to gather and support each other. And that kind of thing also combats the loneliness crisis that we see. And and one of the biggest problems with saying like heat waves are is loneliness. Like the most likely mm-hmm. people to die in heat waves are loneliness. And, and so creating these third spaces is like, five or six problems that you could all bundle into one and start working on. But, but you're right. Like we don't see that anywhere. Like you don't even see the consideration of you, of of trying to do any of these things from almost any government in, in Canada. Like, right? like, like, it's just like not literally there. any at, at, at any at any level. I'm I'm sure I'm sure listeners could come on here and tell me about different municipalities that are trying to um, invest more in their library systems, for instance, in, in robust and meaningful ways. I don't know. The one I go to is like the Halifax Public Library System is incredible and beautiful and 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 clearly has had a lot of time and energy and money invested in it recently. I was in freaking Calgary a few months ago and was blown away at the beautiful libraries that exist in Calgary. And then I come back to Ottawa. I'm sorry, me and my friends, we call it this is like a bit of a joke, but like our nation's cappy and the library system here is such a bummer. I'm so sorry to anybody who's who's a library worker that's listening. This is not in any way shade against you, but like your buildings haven't been invested in. And if you don't have a nice building for people to come to, they're not going to like it's you you need a nice setting for people to go to physically. It, it needs to be warm. It needs to be inviting. It needs to have the services that people are seeking out. Anyway, it, yeah, I just I don't see this kind of investment in these like this her her article isn't exclusive to third spaces but that just sort of is the one that feels most pressing all the time not all the time but like has most recently felt quite pressing to me um and maybe that's because i'm like a single person you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. it's like it's it's we we talk about this all the time sometimes with like especially affordability it's like the running joke is that like oh like i can't leave the house without spending thirty dollars and it's like yeah i can't leave the house without spending thirty dollars because like uh, what am I supposed to do? I guess I, I I walk to a coffee shop. I walk to the bookstore. I walk to the grocery store. I like, y- y- you know what I mean? Like there's just, there's nowhere to go, especially in cold weather in, yeah. in a city like Ottawa where the temperatures drop. It's like, there's nowhere to go unless you have a destination in mind. And so few of our destinations are free to go to almost none of them like literally yes like a library is the only one I can think of and the community center behind me and actually even then to use the community center facilities that costs money too it doesn't cost a lot of money but it costs a little bit of money so you're just you're so so limited so of course we're feeling like you said this crisis of isolation this crisis of loneliness um and and yeah like you said these these third spaces could be a solution for so many overlapping crises um, that we're experiencing, not least of which climate change. And the, what the sort of what's being said in the piece is literally just like the goal is to in, make people see that you are doing things to help them. Like it's part of the work is state propaganda that the state can do stuff. Like that's part of the thing is to convince people that 
it 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 we can't, it should not be on private industry and private spaces for everything. We desperately need public spaces. And so like when we al allow for, you know, underfunding of parks or transit or you know public institutions like libraries and community centers like that all of that is just constantly reminding and telling people that their experience of public usages will be done out of necessity rather than done out of uh, enjoyment and and if you cannot convince people that that can be flipped we'll always be losing i feel like oftentimes um, especially around election time, you hear from like, I don't know, random folks who are maybe a little a little bit conservative, um, maybe not as much as they realize, but like we'll say things like, I want my government to be run like a business. I I I trust that that person because I think he's he's a business owner and he'll he'll help us to run government as efficiently as a business. And it's like, I actually I don't want my government to be run like a business. I don't want it to be about revenue. I don't want it to be about profit. What we need our governments to be run like our libraries. They're public services and that's what needs to be at their core. I I we we don't need um for instance Ottawa's like failing public transit system to be a public transit system that generates revenue for the city. We, that's 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 not what I need it to do. What I need it to do is to provide an efficient, effective, well-networked, low-cost service for citizens of the city. That's that's actually what government is there to do. It's to provide services. It's not to make profit. And I kind of wish those of us on the left or maybe even those on the center would do a better job of pushing back on the idea that government should ever be run like a business because there's like no world in which I think it should be. Exactly. Like if you want a business, get a business. Yeah. yeah. A business doesn't exist to provide a service. A business exists to generate as much money as possible for the shareholders. And like, I don't, that's not, that's yeah. not what I need my government to do. Thank yeah. You. Like there's a reason why it's not a business. It's government because it's doing things that government business doesn't want to do. We write back with Matthew Klippenstein talking about a whole bunch of things, including just why maybe we should have a little bit of hope. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours being green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. We are here with friend of the show, Matthew Klippenstein, who is the regional director for Western Canada for the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. And we're chatting about a whole bunch of different things, in fact. Oh, thanks very much, Stefan. Uh, always, glad to, always glad to be back. You had some thoughts after listening to a previous show that we did with Alex Davisoli, sort of about this difference between innovation and elbow grease and and how we do it. You sort of have a good sense of what the innovation ecosystem is within Canada. So can you sort of give us your perspective on on that? Sure. Um, I guess the, the the main thing that I could add to that conversation is is just, the, I guess it's the term deployment. So a lot of people talk about R&D, that's innovation. Um, in the policy circles, uh, sometimes you hear 
R-D-D, which is to say research, development, and deployment. Um, deployment is a lot less popular with governments often because much larger sums of money are involved. You're not just funding people in labs, you're funding deployments, these early examples of getting things out into the field so you can start manufacturing tens or hundreds and then your, uh, your workers can figure out, oh, well, we can make these improvements and ever so, ever so steadily chip away at the cost. Is like uh, with solar panels, for example. Um, and so um, I guess I too am on the elbow grease side of things in that um, we have a terrific history in Canada of supporting R&D without wanting to uh, you know, fault the public sector or excuse it too much. We have a population of like 40 million people now, not a huge population, very spread out. It is sometimes difficult for us to do the deployment, right? Uh, if we want to deploy something big in BC, we have, a, have to fly an hour and something to get to Alberta, which is the next cluster of decent, uh, decently sized cities where we have a chance to do further deployments. It's much easier in like France, where you drop, uh, where uh, there are more people in a smaller space. Uh, but basically, pulling, pulling it back, um, many countries are very good at research and development, R&D. &D, R &D. Uh, one thing that is very important for the energy transition is to get that other D, the deployment side. Uh, a very uh, nice piece of uh, policy which has been crafted is the, uh, the Canada Growth Fund, which I think it appears to be designed to do exactly that, to get these, to take, take uh, to reduce the business risk to businesses of making these large deployments. So you get things in the field and start to get these kinds of um, economies of scale and learning by doing, these learning curves into effect. So um, that is uh, something that's very hopeful. It's come out of the, the recent years of the, of the current federal government. And I hope that uh, it's able to continue. Uh, maybe one example dear to my heart, because uh, the, the company started off in like Richmond, the local local suburb of Vancouver, is uh, Corvus Energy, uh, Corvus like Crow, I think it's Latin for Crow. And uh, they're the world's dominant supplier of battery energy systems for boats, um, like little tugboats or short distance ferries, things like that. So they have more than 800 deployments worldwide. So all the R&D, a lot of the early support was generated in British Columbia in the Vancouver area itself. Uh, a lot of the deployments came through Scandinavia, Norway, with its very uh, forward thinking uh, ideas on the climate solutions. And so Corvus is now owned by a Norwegian conglomerate of companies. You know, good on them, very, very savvy of them, a very strategic move. Uh, but this would be an example of the of Canada being excellent at the research and, and development, uh, nurturing companies to a certain size. And then if it would have been possible to maintain some sort of Canadian stake, that would have been so nice because Corvus is like the, it's like the Google of search, but for battery uh, energy systems uh, for marine. And so, um, Canada has, a, has a, a long history of such a promising companies getting swallowed up by savvy uh, uh, multi or uh, not, I guess, international companies. And, you know, credit to those international companies for seeing the promise. Uh, if we can get better at the deployment, that last D, uh, that will serve us better, uh, not just in terms of like climate and clean energy benefits, uh, but also in terms of more head offices, which bring in more employees bring you know bring more money through flowing through our economy to put toward more climate solutions of course
classic outcome, you know, of how we try to make this, you know, it's the nature in some ways of this global economy is that it, if you don't, if you don't really support your own orgs, they're going to get purchased and, and then money, you know, gets pulled elsewhere. It's the same way that, you know, the Canadian government started Suncor to be able to approach, uh, are the oil sands they managed to make it they spent all the money to make it profitable and then they let it be bought up by international companies and so now most of the money is being pulled out of the country even though you know how much money to canada spend to get the actual it up all up and running right i mean not not to show my uh my political colors too much but i i think that there was a loss i think it's uh, sort of a north america wide in the the idea that government shouldn't have an industrial policy I mean, that comes out of Friedman. I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from, the uh, University of Chicago uh, Economics Department. Um, and um, maybe the counterexample I would point to is that all of the economies coming out of Asia have had industrial politics, Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, China. Uh, and even if we go back historically, this is covered in, a, there was a Korean economist, um, uh, Hajun Wang Chang, anyway. Uh, I'll find it. We can put it in the notes. But uh, even going back to Europe, um, pretty much every country there industrialized on the basis of industrial policy, where governments were like, you know, it'd be pretty good if we could add value in these sectors of the economy. Let's support uh, local uh, the local industrialization or national industrialization. Uh, and so um, it would be very cool for my kids to grow up uh, in a Canada where we have rediscovered uh, constructive industrial policy and where there is willingness, ideally everywhere in the spectrum to say, well, look, these are valuable technologies. Let's, let's see what they can do if we do deployment in addition to research and development. Sorry, <laughs> it was muted. Right. And so with that in mind, or with sort of the, the, the fact that there are these things that are happening, this is a bit of a, a bit of a jump segue, I'm going to admit to our listeners. Sure. The, um, the you know, we there are these things that are happening, right? Like it's fascinating mm-hmm. to hear that that exists in in boats. I mean, I earlier, but I want to say September of last year, approximately, we had some folks on from uh, from folks who are working on trying to ensure that the next round of shipping boats are not mm-hmm. natural gas. Right, because that's okay. sort of the next push that's being happening. It's like okay, because mm-hmm. the what they're currently burning is very bad, so natural gas is sort of being pushed as a sort of bridge fuel. But of course, no one is changing out fuel types of giant shipping boats mm-hmm. willy nilly. Like if you go that way, right. you're there for a good period of time, a long time, yeah. And and one of the conversations they were talking about was just how there isn't totally an, an answer right now. And so I'd be interested to know what scale help that you get. But of course, I mean, I guess what's interesting, you would know about this, is that one of the main things that people are looking at hydrogen to do is that they sort of see it as more likely to be useful in freight in that That's area right. or, or like yeah. or freight uh, tripping or like big trucks rather than, say, smaller cars, because like, you know, electric vehicles right now have, have a lead. So it's, right. it's likely they will be the main passenger vehicles but batteries don't work as well the bigger and bigger things you get and so like the 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 opportunity to see hydrogen fuel cells say in um big trucks is something that people are really actually interested in yeah yeah it is so yeah batteries are fantastic um uh for light duty vehicles i i'm 
I'm of the school that thinks that uh, like e-bikes are actually an even more exciting place to be uh, in terms of reclaiming some of our road space towards non-passenger vehicle, towards public transit and such. Uh, but yeah, batteries are fantastic. They're at scale as well. Um, there was a lot of hype around hydrogen about 20 years ago. I was at Ballard Power Systems at the time. Um, and there were these very colorful visions that, oh, every car in the world could be powered by a fuel cell. And I think it's worth remembering that at that time, worldwide production capacity of these fuel cells was like 200 cars a year. Like it was that small scale. Uh, meanwhile, lithium-ion batteries are uh, steadily improving. They were already everywhere thanks to electronic uh, devices and so forth. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's natural and beneficial that uh, batteries have, uh, have come to where they are in the light duty vehicle space and including some larger vehicles as well. Even um, as with the example of Corvus Energy, some, uh, some short distance ferries in Norway and elsewhere. Um, hydrogen does have advantages in the longer distance or the large vehicle freight. Uh, maybe an analogy from, uh, from nature would be that like small creatures, crabs or insects, I guess, going up to crabs maybe. Uh, they have exoskeletons because at a certain scale, nothing beats an exoskeleton for like strength to weight ratio and all this other magical stuff. Uh, and then after you get the size of about a, a cat or so, then everything up uh, upwards of that, like a cat or a horse or whale, it's all vertebrates. At a certain point, the advantages switch to a different type of skeleton. Uh, it's not quite as clean cut uh, with um, batteries or direct electrification uh, versus hydrogen, but there's kind of a similar... A similar scenario there where hydrogen uh, is at its best with heavier vehicles or vehicles needing to move further uh, as compared to batteries. Um, on the case of marine shipping, the distances covered are so enormous that um, the likely uh, path forward might be some sort of renewable fuel, um, whether that's like a biodiesel or a biofuel of some sort, basically something where the carbon uh, in the hydrocarbon fuel is coming from some sort of renewable resource, so it's not fossil-based. Uh, that relates mainly to the energy density that uh, liquid fuels have. Um, like the challenge that we have with oil and with other fossil fuels is that they literally are very energy dense and relatively, speak, uh, relatively cheap, comparatively speaking, which is why we got to use so many of them and have now discovered the, uh, the, uh, the climate, the consequences of. So yeah, hydrogen has a role to play. It's it's definitely not the Batman scenario. It's more the Robin to the Batman of say batteries, uh, but it is pretty cool. And um, we have a a proud history here on the R and D side, and uh, am hopeful that we can uh, get some uh, assistance from government on the deployment side as well. Right, that makes sense. And so to bring these things forward you know like this is just one example of the things you've mentioned are like three four or five examples of pretty systems-wide shift right like every sector needs to decarbonize and every sector will likely have different ways of doing it you know the th the way things that work for decarbonizing say cement are not going to be the same things we use for decarbonizing you know regular power grids which are not going to the same things we used for long-range shipping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. However, we are seeing this sort of work being done in all of these different fields. And one of the things that I think is, you know, useful to keep in mind, especially for, my, for someone like me who 
it can get overwhelmed by the number of bad things that are happening in the world <laughs> and the number right. of ways in which it feels like, you know, we're losing in 6,000 different ways. And and then mm. each study you come across, you know, like there's some studies, there's some pieces last year of data points about the overall heat uh, and lack of ice there that were yeah. just truly terrifying to me. Like there were some real like, bad, real bad scenes. Right. The ocean, ocean temperature variation spike that happened this year, basically. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And when you talk about the show, but uh, you know, you are a useful person to have because you also bring this sort of intention to avoid despair, which is helpful mm -hmm. because despair is obviously even even in the face of something that is likely going to fail, like I'm not, I'm not saying I have to believe we will win and we'll solve this, or else I don't know what I would do with myself. But right. like, say we're in a different scenario and you knew you were going to fail, there is still v value and importance in avoiding despair. Else, you will just totally give up and you'll get the worst, worst outcome instead of say the medium worst outcome, and that could still mean hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if not billions of lives, right? Like in these yeah. in these kind of scenarios. And so how, where do you turn? And and how do you think about when you look to try to avoid despair and, and sort of push back against the sort of doom that we can feel? Sure, sure. I, um, given the amount of criticism hydrogen gets, I do feel despair myself on occasion. Uh, may, maybe I'll, I'll preface very quickly that hydrogen is a little bit like a platypus people aren't really sure how to categorize it, right? So hydrogen, the big strike against it is that historically it's been produced from, from fossil fuels, from natural gas. Uh, and so it's been historically tied to a very polluting fossil fuel sector. In fairness, we didn't have the political will to price carbon until uh, 10 years ago. So you might not, uh, and we also didn't have other technologies to generate hydrogen as cheaply. Um, but uh, the, the counter to that, the very positive optimism side, is that going forward, most new hydrogen production is going to be very low carbon. That's probably going to be from renewables. There's some other sources we can get to, but there'll be renewables dominant. Um, it doesn't change the fact that it's got a, a historical background, which is you know, not scrumptious, uh, but uh, that's just uh, the, the nature of the world. Um, I, think, I think there are, there are some pro-nuclear anti-renewable circles. You would never figure it, but there are some. And um, the, I think one of the criticisms given is that renewables used to be hydropower. And in the bad old days, when we didn't know better, we didn't have as much respect um, for people, uh, these dams were built without FSIP, right? Or FPIC, rather, uh, without free prior informed consent. Now, fortunately, we are in a much better place now where an enormous amount of renewables are getting built. This is awesome. And... Uh, in the context of Canada, that's all getting built with FPIC. I cannot imagine many, if any, projects going forward without proper uh, inclusion and economic reconciliation for First Nations, for Indigenous peoples. Uh, so I would, uh, I would just say that um, it's fair for people to have a bit of skepticism around hydrogen. That's totally valid. Um, it's not going to do everything. Uh, at the same time, the undesirable past of hydrogen uh, in some eyes doesn't shouldn't exclude it from conversation just as the undesirable old days of hydro shouldn't exclude renewables uh, but going to going to the despair part um, I guess the uh, there was there was a, a, a little thing on blue sky which really struck me the other day where um, like despair 
conveys powerlessness. It's like, help, I don't know what to do. And I think there is some value in as angry and frustrated as you might be to have, I don't know, the inertia, if nothing else, of like laboriously moving forward. Like, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. The the uh, the the um, the tweet or the skeet whatever it's called uh, talked about how comparing Trump to a dictator wasn't productive because Trump covets being believed of as strong and what are dictators if if nothing they're strong and the uh, the um, the proposal or the, the suggestion was you know refer to him as a weak loser right refer to him as the was he four times bankrupt as the bankrupt 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 former President Trump. And do that all the time, and then, and then you provide the audience with some sense of power. Versus, oh, there's a dictator. Everyone knows the dictators get their ways. That's disempowering. I'm sure it's a different context between Donald Trump and the climate uh, and the biosphere, uh, but in a similar sense, um, there is enough that is. There are enough, maybe green shoots, maybe we call them, enough, enough green shoots of positive outcomes that are beginning to happen that um, by, by just keeping those in mind, it prevents me from just kind of collapsing into a catatonic despair, into that the despondency there. Um, I guess the, uh, the like I, I was born, I don't know, God, 50 years ago, so when I was born, we were at like 3.30 ppm. We're now at like 4.20 ppm CO2. That's kind of like, oh, not desirable. Uh, at the same time, when I was born, average world average lifespan was like 58 years and it's now 73 years. That is progress. Now, to date, historically, that's been tied to ever increasing use of cheap energy, comma, from fossil fuels. Uh, the exciting part amidst all the uh, very valid concerns and sobering data that we get is with renewables becoming e ever cheaper, ever, ever cheaper every year, being deployed on like a vertical, like hockey stick, a real life hockey stick, then we can keep those like average lifespan numbers going up steadily uh, while the CO2 level, we can bend that curve and like with enormous amounts of grit and de determination, flatten it and maybe some someday soon start to chip away at it. Um, but we can't do that if if we convince ourselves that it's hopeless kind of. It's like it's not hopeless until you stop trying. That really doesn't belong on a bumper sticker. Like I'm sure there's something much more glorious that can be put there. But um, there is um, there is enough to yeah there are enough green shoots or enough little data points that are worth treasuring and helping grow even as we i guess we mourn other data points which are factually objectively very sobering yeah and it's all about sort of trying to manage that both you can't ignore and it, it goes back i guess a little bit to the insider outside of the game or the good cop bad cop is that like mm -hmm. life is constantly going to be filled with a bit of good news and then a bit of terrifying news at least in these kind of conversations and so like you're motivated by but by both right like you're motivated because you right. can win because you see the things and because things are getting so so bad you know there's right, right. i i guess yeah like um 
I think Steven Pinker, there's some people who have uh, who've written books about like, oh, human life's only getting better and better and better. And to me, that seems complacent because when you're like, oh, this is this is human destiny to only get better. That's when even worse things comes along because you're not vigilant and so forth. Um, I would be, uh, I, I guess, I don't know who would be complacent about the, the data that is broadly coming in week after week, day after day on the, like the, uh, the planet's vitals. Um, but at the same time, um, there are legitimate, um, legitimately inspiring things that uh, we can take to heart to just keep moving forward. Uh, if we can just out-endure uh, the inertia of, I don't know, of past bad human actions, then we can you know, eventually replace them with better human actions or, or at least less bad ones. Right. That makes sense. And so um, unfortunately, uh, we are running out of time. And so I want to I want to give you the last word, which is our tradition of the show. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, this has been Matthew Klippenstein, the regional director for Western Canada for the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association and friend of the show. Thank you so much for your thoughts. And yeah, if you were going to leave our listeners for one thought for I'm going to say 2024 because it's the second show of the year, what would it be? Uh, I guess it would be to... Um... What was that line from the? There was a line in one of those Batman movies. It was like this: "Like uh, you can persist, or you can uh, you can keep moving forward." Um, and we are in a period of, uh, let's say, federal political uh, upheaval. There's some stuff going on that the listeners aren't going to be too keen about, uh, or there are some dynamics, some polling that isn't favorable. Uh, and again, that's one of those things that uh, you can't control. But what we can control is. Uh, how we move forward in our each individual little way, and it's pretty insignificant on the big scale, but you know every little bit uh, is cumulative. And so, regardless of what the headlines might be, whether they're political, climate-related news, um, then um, if we move forward, well, then uh, at least we're in the direction of progress. Thank you.